follow along with me in the scripture reading this morning. It can be found in the Bible in the pew racks in front of you, beginning on page 443. I will be reading Job chapter 38 in its entirety, and then uh, jumping over to Job chapter 39, verse 26 through 40, verse 2. So please stand for the reading of God's word. I'll begin Job chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? Or what were its, on what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb, when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band, and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began? and cause the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth, and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you, or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this, where is the way to the dwelling of light, and where is the place of darkness, that you may take it to its territory, and that you may discern the paths to its home? You know, for you were born then, and the number of your days is great. Have you entered the storehouses of the snow, or have you seen the storehouses of the hail, which I have reserved for the time of trouble, for the day of battle and war? What is the way to the place where the light is distributed or where the east wind is scattered upon the earth? Who has cleft a channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land where no man is, on the desert in which there is no man, to satisfy the waste and desolate land and to make the ground sprout with grass? Has the rain a father? Or who has begotten the drops of dew? From whose womb did the ice come forth and who has given birth to the frost of heaven? The waters became hard like stone, and the face of the deep is frozen. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth the Maseroth in their seasons, or can you guide the bear with his, with his children? Do you know the ordinances of the heavens? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover you? Can you send forth lightnings that they may go and say to you, Here we are. Who has put wisdom in the inward parts or given understanding to the mind? Who can number the clouds by wisdom? Or who can tilt the water skins of the heavens when the dust runs into a mass and the clods stick fast together? Can you hunt the prey for the lion or satisfy the appetite of the young lions when they crouch in their dens or lie in wait in their thicket? Who provides for the raven its prey when its young ones cry to God for help and wander about for lack of food? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings toward the south? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? 
On the rock he dwells and makes his home, on the rocky crag and stronghold. From there he spies out the prey. His eyes behold it from far away. His young ones suck up blood, and where the slain are, there he is. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. This is God's word. encourage you to keep your Bibles out so that uh, you can follow along as we walk through these couple of chapters together. Let's pray and uh, ask God to open our hearts to his word. Gracious God, uh, what a book is the book of Job and what range of human emotion and experience it touches. Pray that as we look into your word this morning, your spirit would be taking your word and applying it to our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear you and eyes to see you, Lord, uh, that you would make yourself known, and that you would change us by the truth of your gospel. So we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Expectations can be a pretty uh, tricky and humbling thing. Uh, especially when they catch you off guard. When you're, you go through that experience where you're really, really looking forward to something, you're longing for it, you can almost taste it, and then you finally get it, and it's not exactly what you thought it was going to be. It's kind of this dislocating experience. Uh, you know, the anticipation of a first date with someone that you've been kind of drawn to for a while, and then all of a sudden you're there, and this is not the person who you thought it was. It's kind of disorienting. Or, or you know, getting excited about your first day on a new job, a job that you've been looking for and praying for, and you get there, and 90% of what you're doing is not what you thought you'd be doing. Sometimes the distance between what you expected and what really is uh, can be pretty jarring and disorienting even life-altering. And that's pretty much uh, what Job experienced when he finally got what he has been longing and looking for through the entire book, an audience with the God of heaven. As we saw last week in chapter 3, uh, excuse me, chapter 13, Job's desire in his trial that he's been walking through uh, is not to spend all of his time answering the accusations of his friends, but simply to have an audience with God, with his creator. Uh, Chapter 13, verse 3. But I would speak to the Almighty, and I desire to argue my case with God. And again in verse 18. Behold, I've prepared my case. I know that I shall be in the right. And so verse 22, he says to God, Call, and I will answer. Or let me speak, and you reply to me. Let's have a conversation. Someone, somehow, talk, Lord. More than anything else he wants is to have this audience with God, to have a conversation, and to finally figure out what in the world has been going on. If you're just joining us uh, or not otherwise familiar with the story of Job, we've been kind of doing a bit of an overview of the book in uh, five weeks And uh, the story started uh, when Satan had an audience with God, clear back in chapter 1, when he appeared before God in heaven and accused Job of only worshiping God because of what he got out of it. Uh, Job's reputation was 
One was as a man who was blameless and upright, a man who fears God and turns away from evil. And Satan challenged God with a question. Does Job fear you for no reason? Is the only reason we worship God because of what we get out of it? That's the question. That's the challenge, the accusation he laid. And, and Satan tells him that, tells God that if you remove all of the blessing and all of your protection from him, He's going to curse you to your face. And so God does. He strikes Job. He, he removes family and fortune and even his health. And Job remains faithful to God. His integrity remains intact. He grieved deeply. He was completely undone. And yet he answered Satan's question by saying, No, God is worthy of our worship, whether we receive blessing or disaster from his hand. So that's how the, how the story started. But Satan is not the only one who accuses Job throughout this book. Last week, we looked at an example of the dialogue between Job and his three friends, uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, which takes up really most of the book and uh, raises another question. Can the righteous suffer? Can the righteous suffer? Uh, Job's friends answer that question with a resounding no. Their assumption is that the way that the world works, the way that God works, is that the righteous are rewarded and it's the wicked who suffer. And so if you're suffering like Job, you must be wicked. That's their logic. That's their wisdom. That's their worldview and conclusion. And so, so their question really is, what did you do to bring this kind of disaster on yourself, Job? And for Job to maintain his innocence, uh, in their mind, is to suggest that God has done something wrong. And that, you know, and they're going to have none of that. And so they see themselves as defending God's reputation by condemning Job for some unspoken or hidden sin. Uh, but the, the, the strange part of that for Job is that he shares their basic assumption of how the world works. That the way God's justice works is that the wicked are punished and the righteous are blessed, which is why he's so confused. He doesn't have a category to process what he's going through. He knows that he's innocent. He knows that there's nothing that he did to specifically bring about this trial on himself. He knows, in other words, that the righteous can, in fact, suffer, as we saw, Yet he also knows that God is the one who has done this. No one else could have you know, snuck behind God's back and, and done some sort of thing to strike him unless God was in it. And, and we even saw that from another vantage in chapters 1 and 2. Satan had to have God's permission to do what he did to Job. And so, so Job has these two realities, but what he doesn't have is a category for figuring out how the righteous can suffer and God can be responsible without somehow implicating God in doing wrong. That's his struggle. From his understanding of how the world works, this does not seem right. And so it raises a question for him throughout the book, and one that, that will really be answered this morning in our passage, and that is this. Is God righteous when the righteous suffers? Is God righteous when the righteous suffer? But to answer that, Job has to get his one desire. He has to have his audience 
with God. And so far, God does not seem to want to talk. Job cries out in chapter 23, verse 3, Oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. I would lay my case before him and fill my mouth with arguments. I would know what he would answer me and understand what he would say to me. I would finally have all of this figured out. But from the opening lament in chapter 3, through all of the dialogue and debates, three cycles of of back and forth between Job and his friends, up to Job's closing argument in chapter 31, God has remained silent. And even in chapter 32, he doesn't speak yet. You you meet uh, a new character in the book, a man named Elihu, who attempts to defend God's justice against both Job and his three friends. And and we begin to get some clarity with Elihu. Um, He says some very wise things, but even his wisdom falls short of being able to account for Job's situation. And so it's not until you get to chapter 38, until Job finally has his day in the Lord's presence, when things will truly come into focus. Job gets what he's been looking and longing for, this audience with God, a chance to I don't know, receive a clear indictment, a a, a list of the charges so that he can argue against them and defend and clear his name, or at least a chance to understand why. Why? This is what Job expects in this conversation. What we expect as readers of Job is for God to let Job in on the secret, to kind of say, you know, explain that, This whole thing was really a test. And you know what, buddy? You passed it. You did good. We're we're kind of, that's what we want God to say there. Or at least maybe to clarify a theology of suffering, to help him understand that there are reasons that the righteous will suffer. There are things that God accomplishes through that. You know, sometimes it's just the fact that we live in a fallen world, but, you know, maybe God is disciplining us to teach us to hate sin and love righteousness like Hebrews 12 talks about or or uh, maybe uh, so that we can share in Christ's afflictions to know him more and to reflect his love like Philippians 3 talks about or or uh, always almost always because suffering changes us it strips us away of the the false gods that we cling to and the things we depend on instead of God and it he anchors our hope more fully in him, and you see that in Romans 8 and elsewhere. And So you kind of expect God to either, you know, uh, let him in on the secret or, or at least correct his theology or something like that. But we find none of those explanations here. No account of the opening uh, encounter with Satan. He never brings it up. Uh, nor will Job find what he's Uh, been looking for, nor will he find the the precise answers to his questions. Whereas Job thought that that getting an audience with God would mean he'd finally get some answers about God's behavior, instead, he's called to account for his many and sometimes foolish words. That's not exactly what he expected, but that's what happens. He receives his summons in chapter 38. Verses 1 through 3. The Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel 
by words without knowledge. Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. That doesn't sound good. You know, if you've been longing to get these answers and that's what you hear, this is not going to go the way you thought it was going to go. Notice first the posture of God's speech, that he speaks out of the whirlwind. It's kind of a strange description, uh, but it signals a, uh, a kind of majesty and danger in God and his response. Uh, you know, growing up in Nebraska in the Midwest, we were always wary of tornadoes. And the kind of damage that they can inflict is just catastrophic. And yet, there's this strange attraction to want to watch them at work. You know, so, so you know, you have the storm chasers out there parking in, you know, your driveway when everybody's supposed to be taking cover. And you kind of want to be out there with them watching this terrible, awesome, devastating, majestic storm. And that's kind of this feeling you get with God speaking out of the whirlwind. There's something majestic and terrifying and really dangerous about his response. This might not be good. And next comes the rebuke. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. That is not good. That is, God is not pleased with Job here. Which is kind of shocking when you think about how the book started and, and how Job has, has you know, come along. It's kind of shocking and then also kind of not. At the beginning of the book, God praised Job for his integrity and his reverence. Uh, and Job has actually been completely in the right to defend his innocence. He's done nothing wrong in defending his innocence, despite the attempts of his friends to get, kind of get him to con- confess to some sin he didn't actually commit. So, and yet, while Job has been honest about his pain and truthful in defending his innocence... He has not always been wise in how he has put everything together. As John Walton notes in his commentary, although Job's conduct is above reproach, his understanding is flawed. Job has certain ideas about how the world works, and because God is not playing by those rules, he believes that God owes him an explanation. As a result, he darkens or obscures God's counsel, as God puts it, God's divine plan. He obscures it with ignorant words, words that aren't as wise as Job thought they were. As God will say in a second speech to Job in chapter 40, verse 8, he says, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Job regards in his, in his, uh, attempt to kind of maintain his own innocence, he ends up regarding his own righteousness as greater than the righteousness of God. That's not a good idea. And so finally comes the summons. In verse 3, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. In other words, man up, because it's about to get real. 
you think that I owe you an explanation. Well, how about you explain a few things to me first? And what follows are 17 grueling lines of questioning, all aimed at making one major point to Job and to us. You may think that you have the world figured out and that therefore have a right to question God when it doesn't go according to your expectations. But God is the only one wise enough to order his world, including our suffering. And so we need to remember that he is God and we are not. And instead of questioning his judgment, to trust his wisdom. That's the point he's going to drive home. And so the interrogation begins in... uh, Uh, chapter 38, and and the first 10 lines of questioning all the way through 38, verse 38, God interrogates Job about the inner workings of the cosmos, the the creation. And he starts with an elementary topic, uh, verse 4. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Do you you want an explanation for me? All right, explain a few things first. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding, uh, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases, its, its footings sunk? And who laid the cornerstone? Did you, you have his number? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. I mean, you know who they are, right? My, my heavenly entourage. Have you met? Oh, you haven't met them? Okay. If you think I owe you an explanation... For how I run the world, you tell me, how is it run? Now, if God's answer to Job makes you feel a little uncomfortable, that's because it should. What follows is not easy to swallow or particularly pretty. In fact, some have accused God of far worse here, of a snobbish insensitivity toward Job. Kind of like a professor who refuses to answer your question because it's just too stupid. Or a condescending showman. Like Kevin Durant showing up at an elementary school to dunk on a few first graders. Just kind of flexing his muscles to Job. But a better analogy, I think, is of a loving father answering a child who thinks he has everything figured out and that he ought to be running the show instead of dad. Job is the five-year-old who thinks he's 15, or the 12-year-old who thinks he's 25. He demands an account for how mom and dad run the house. But in reality, the answer is simply too heavy for him. Kind of like when your child argues with your decision to not let them do something. Uh, you know, not let them spend the night at a friend's house, and they want to know why. And you have your reasons. You know, maybe it's reasons that you don't trust the parents or reasons that you don't trust the kid, but you can't always explain those reasons to your child. And so the answer in that time is, because I'm the parent. That's why. That's essentially what God is saying here to Job. You don't understand how it's working, and you want answers, but guess what? You need to trust my wisdom. I'm the parent. You're not. 
And God reminds him of that in a way that he will never forget. Now, we'll notice um, as we look at the next several lines of questioning that, that God is using the categories of the ancient world to describe his role in ordering the cosmos. Um, you know, we see the earth pictured as having foundations and footings and, and a cornerstone, or the sea being confined with doors and bars, or snow and hail being kept in storehouses, or rain in water skins. And, and we need to keep in mind that God is not intending to teach a geography or a meteorology lesson here. He's using categories, you know, poetic and metaphorical categories, but categories nonetheless that would have uh, made sense to Job and his friends in their day in terms of how they pictured the world being put together. His point is to use those categories in order to get across that he is the one who created and controls and holds all of this together. And so in verses 8 through 11, he questions Job about the sea. Starts with the elementary basics. Where were you when I created everything? I founded the world. Now let's talk about the sea. Who is it that keeps it where it's supposed to be and doesn't let it go anywhere else? Setting the limits for its reach. Thus far you shall come and no farther. Verses 8 through 11. Was that you, Job? Okay, just checking. Uh, in verses 12 to 15, he asks him whether he has ever commanded the morning, whether he has ever told the sun when to get up and when to set. You know, do you, do you keep that clock? Uh, he pictures, God pictures the sun here as uh, coming up and scattering the wicked, like, you know, flipping on the light and, and, and the cockroaches run to the dark. Wicked love to do their deeds in the dark. And so the picture here is the sun coming up and picking up a picnic blanket and scattering the wicked like a bunch of crumbs off of it. That's what happens when the sun rises. Can you do that? Can you control that? Uh, do you have experience in that department? Uh, how about the extremities of the earth, verses 16 to 18? Could you give me a tour of the deep recesses of the ocean and show me what happens there? Or maybe the deep, darkest caverns of the earth. Or how about a tour of where light and darkness are stored? Verses 19 to 21. How do those work? You were there when I said, let there be light, weren't you? Oh, you weren't? Okay. Uh, that's right, I forgot. Uh, well, let's talk about the storehouses of rain and snow then. Verses 22 to 24, where I keep my supply of precipitation. Or, or how about my delivery system for getting it where I want it to go? A channel for the torrents of rain and a way for the thunderbolt. Verses 25 to 27. Let's talk about the, the source of all of that precipitation. Where does it come from? 28 to 30. Or, or how to command it and make it rain whenever you want. Could you do that one? Verses 34 to 38. Or let's talk about the stars. Look at the, you know, go outside and look at the, the constellations we, we love, you know, Orion and, and the Big Dipper and all that. Can you kind of like put those together or, or take them apart like Legos in the sky? Could you do that? And lest we are tempted upon reading this to say, you know, Job might not have been able to answer those questions, but we kind of know more than he does today. We know more about how the weather works and, and so on. Okay, well then tell me when the next tornado is going to hit. 
We who know that precipitation and has this cycle and on, tell me where it's going to hit and how bad. Or better yet, we've had a pretty rough drought the last few months. Go make it rain. If you understand how weather works, go make it rain. Or if you really want to show off, go create your own world and design your own weather system for it. Then maybe God will be impressed. And as the questions go on, you, you just kind of feel worse and worse for Job. It's like sitting in the audience of an oral exam or, or a sales pitch where the presenter just isn't really prepared enough for the questions. And with each question that they don't know, you just kind of sink deeper in your chair because you just feel embarrassed. That's kind of what it's like reading this chapter. Um, but God is not done, and so we have a little bit lower to sink yet. In verses, uh, in chapter 38, verse 39, through the end of chapter 39, God now switches the subject from the cosmic order to its constituency, to the animals that live upon the earth. And so... He continues, all right, Job, uh, can you feed the predators and the scavengers? Can you uh, take care of the lion and, and the raven? Do you supply the animals for the kill? How about when they're born? Do you know that? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Do you set boundaries for the wild donkey? Is, is the wild ox willing to serve you? Did you make the ostrich both beautiful and stupid at the same time, such that it loves its plumage and neglects its young? Did you do that? Is that? Did you wire him that way? Did you? Do you give the horse his might? Do you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like the locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings to the south? Did you teach him that? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and makes his nest on high? You can answer any time. And so God lays out his questions. And then he makes his closing argument. Closing really what is the first of two speeches here. Chapter 40, verses 1 through 2. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty. He who argues with God, let him answer it. Kind of one of those mic drop moments. Your turn. If you think I owe you an explanation, an account of my justice, then answer these questions. If you can't answer these questions, then why do you think you have enough information to evaluate whether what I'm doing is right or wrong? It's not the answer you expect, especially when you consider the depth of Job's suffering. But it is the answer that Job needed, and the one that we sometimes need as well. There is for all of us a temptation when we don't understand the ways of God to expect that he therefore owes us an explanation, to imply that he is somehow in the wrong in the way that he's treated us because he's not doing things according to the way we think it should work. As he puts it here, to darken his counsel and contend with the Almighty. As we saw in chapter 3, God wants us to be honest 
about our sorrows and pains and frustrations. And yet he doesn't want us to forget that he's the parent and we're not. Now we'll look at Job's response next week when we bring our series to a conclusion. But what do we, you and I, what do we do with this this morning? There are at least three things I think we should take away from God's answer, especially as we face trouble and suffering in our lives. The first is to remember that God is God and we are not. That he's the parent and we don't have all of the information. As John Piper has said, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life and you may be aware of three of them. Keep that in mind. You know, I may think that I have this world figured out and therefore that I have the right to question God when it doesn't go according to my expectations. But God is the only one wise enough to know everything that's going on and and to be able to order his entire creation so that all works together according to his plan, including my suffering. Isaiah 55 says, God says, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. We don't have all the information. Or Romans 11. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge in the mind of the Lord. Excuse me. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And who has been his counselor? Who gave him advice on how to do all of this? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? John Walton writes that in truth, we will never be in a position to evaluate God's justice. In order to appraise the justice of a decision... We must have all of the facts. For justice can be derailed if we do not have all the information. Because we never have all the information about our lives, we cannot judge God when he brings experiences to us or makes claims and demands. We cannot reach an affirmation about God's justice through our own limited insight or experiences. Instead... We affirm his justice by faith directed toward his wisdom. As we've seen, God's speech does not offer a defense of his justice, but of his wisdom and power. He knows what he's doing. God is the only one wise enough to order his world, including my suffering. And so I can trust him, therefore, to be just in how he does it. That's the first point, to remember God is God and we are not. We don't have all the information. The second comes straight out of it, to trust God's providence. If he is God and and he has the wisdom, the second response then is to trust in him to work all things out according to that wisdom, to trust what we call providence, his secret, silent, working things out according to his plan. And he is doing that whether it makes sense to us or not. Instead of questioning his judgment, we need to trust his wisdom. You think of Romans 8.28. 
which sometimes comes off as a kind of a trite platitude or a tired cliche when you offer it to someone experiencing something hard. But make no mistake, this is gospel truth. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Not just the good and the easy things, all things. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. There's a plan. There's a direction God is moving with all things. That we might bear the image of his son in order that he, the son, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That we'd be brought into his family. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. There is a glory that God is working out in working all things for our good. Those 10,000 things that God is always doing, the three of which we might be aware, are all working out to bring about the good of God's people and the glory of his name. And sometimes that plan, oftentimes that plan, is too big for us to see. The details are too heavy for us to carry. If we had advanced warning, we would object. But the plan is moving somewhere. And, that su- and, and suffering is one of the ways that it gets there. Suffering is one of the ways that it gets us from where we are to where God wants us to be. And so good and glorious is the result of that suffering that Paul says this in Romans 8, 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And if you're not convinced that suffering can ever amount to anything good, or if you get discouraged In the midst of it, the third thing that I want you to walk away with this morning is to remember the cross. To remember the cross. We need to remember God is God. We are not. To trust his providence and to remember the cross. How can suffering ever amount to anything good? The cross is the preeminent answer to that question. If you think about it from a human vantage, the cross makes absolutely no sense. I mean, how is Jesus going to establish his kingdom by getting himself killed? Didn't think that one through. Revolutions don't succeed that way, and so on. From all of our human vantage, there's no category for why that would be the plan. That's which is why his disciples had such a hard time wrapping their heads around it. Uh, you know, even though he told them several times, I'm, we're going to go to Jerusalem, they're going to arrest me, they're going to kill me, it's going to happen, they still were shocked when it happened. They couldn't wrap their heads around a category that God could do something amazing through something so terrible. It's still shocking for us today, but the greatest suffering in all of human history, a suffering that puts Job's, uh, that Job's pales in comparison to, the greatest act of evil in all human history. Sinful humans crucifying God in the flesh. And all of it was according to plan. 
All of it was according to plan. God's providence. Acts, Peter says in Acts 2, 23, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. The cross was the plan. God's providence brought unparalleled suffering on his son who willingly received it. And yet, not only was it according to plan, it was through this greatest act of suffering, this greatest evil human history has ever known, that God brought the greatest good that eternity will ever know. The saving of our souls. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. There is a providence so mysterious that none of us could have ever searched it out or seen it coming if God had not told us. And it's through Christ's suffering that we find the forgiveness of our sins and new life through faith. Can any good ever come of suffering that God would plan to bring upon his people. The wisdom of God is greater than the wisdom of man. And so if if we can trust God with our eternal security through Christ, if we can trust God that he is going to guard our souls for all eternity through what he's done on the cross, through the greatest suffering and the greatest glory, can we trust him with the trial we're facing today? If he's enough to carry my soul for all eternity, can he get me through this? Whatever this is. We don't always have all of the information. And so instead of questioning God's judgment, pray for the grace to trust his wisdom. He's the only one wise enough to order this world, including our suffering, and he will work out all things for our good and his glory. Let's pray. Lord, we confess the truth of Isaiah 55, that your thoughts are not our thoughts, that your ways are not our ways. None of us would have ever planned to redeem the world the way you did. And few of us would ever desire any of the trouble we sometimes find ourselves in. And yet, God, we thank you that you are the parent. We thank you that you are the parent and that you have the wisdom not only to do what is good and right and just, but to know when to let us in on that and when to carry it in our place. And so we pray, God, that that we would, as Job has been, be honest with our suffering and our frustration and our pain. But let us not forget that you are the parent and that we don't have all the information. May we trust your wisdom and fall upon you. In Jesus' name, amen.